Well, I want to correct something that I said a couple times in sermons past. I made mention that uh, Mary Magdalene was a former prostitute, and I wanted to correct that. It's not accurate. I did some research on that, and that whole concept was a Roman Catholic concept that became popular. Uh, she was not a wayward woman or a woman of poor morals at all. What happened was a certain pope blended together um, the sinful woman that Jesus uh, he forgave in the stoning and another woman who was anointing Jesus' feet, and the belief became, because of the Roman church teaching, that she had been a prostitute. Scripture does not um, indicate that. So I want you to know I continue to be pledged to being as accurate I possibly can be as I preach the Word of God. So I apologize for that uh, error on my part. Well, we're coming back to the book of Acts this morning, and uh, we're going to be going through this book in the will of the Lord and the strength of the Lord and the life of the Lord, verse by verse. We're going to look at Acts 1, 1 to 11 this morning. The sermon is titled, Leaving and Waiting. Um, and let me start by saying there are many leavings in our lives, aren't there? There are some leavings that are very hard and other leavings that um, are less difficult, perhaps. And there's a lot of waiting in life. So leaving and waiting is not alien to any one of us. It's the part and parcel of being a human being. What we're going to see in the first 11 verses of the book of Acts is both leaving and waiting. Now look up here, if you would, with me. The Gospels and the book of Acts have some distinctives. They are not the same. For instance, the Gospels, the four of them, focus on Jesus, but the book of Acts mostly focuses on Jesus' church. The four Gospels show uh, the salvation message, and Acts tells the Holy Spirit's work. The Gospels point out Messiah is the end in mind, and Acts that Christ's mission is the end in mind. The four Gospels uh, progress king, servant, man, savior. The book of Acts progresses Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. The four Gospels present Christ among many ways, but as Savior, and Acts presents him as Savior, head of the born church. Christ is the center of it all, but slightly different foci between this, the four Gospels and the book of Acts. Now, as I said, we're going to consider the first 11 verses of chapter 1 together. Before I read them, let me say that the uh, big idea for the 11 verses would be something like this. Jesus leaves, his disciples wait. Jesus leaves earth, his disciples wait for the Holy Spirit. Verses 1 to 11, Acts chapter 1. Hear the word of God. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus be began both to do and teach until the day of in which he was taken up after through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he, Christ, commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Turned out it was 10 days. 
Verse 6, therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Verse 9. Now when they had spoken these, he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up in a cloud, received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So read the first 11 verses of the book of Acts. You know, I think when I was a child, and maybe you can relate, when I was a child, at least two things brought me some concern. One was my parents leaving me for a time, for whatever reason, and second, having to wait for something that I really, really wanted. Both those things caused me some concern. And in the action of Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11, the church isn't young church. In these verses, the church is in utero. The church hasn't been born yet. The birth of the church will be in Acts chapter 2, won't it? So in these verses, the church was not yet born, but on the mind and heart and counsel of God, to be sure. And so I see two big causes for Jesus' first followers to have anxiety. A lot of us battle with anxiety during COVID. A lot of us do. And the first followers of Christ in the action of chapter 1 before the birth of the church in chapter 2, a lot of those first followers of Jesus, when they got a sense he was leaving to go back to heaven, when they got a sense that he would not like be physically present with them like they had enjoyed and counted on before, some of them were very anxious, nervous, not at peace. I think there were two big causes for such anxiety surrounding the time of Jesus Christ's ascension. First, Jesus left earth. That's what the text says. He went up as they watched into a cloud, and he left earth. That might have caused them anxiety, I think. And then second, before he went, he told his closest friends and followers that you're going to have to wait for the Holy Spirit to be sent to you. I imagine waiting also was difficult and caused anxiety. How long would they have to wait? Would they have to stay holed up in a room, hidden from the Romans because they didn't want to get crucified? How long would that take? When would the Holy Spirit come? They weren't told. They were simply told that he would come. And he did 10 days after this ascension event. And so the first part we're going to look at just in the minutes of today is we're going to look at Jesus leaving. And God willing, a future sermon, we'll look at the disciples waiting, okay? So we're just going to look at the first 11 verses through the lens today of Jesus leaving. So 40 days had passed. Jesus Christ resurrected bodily, literally from the dead, seen of individuals, seen of small groups, seen of persons numbering up to 500 persons, it says in 1 Corinthians. 40 days had passed since resurrection. 
And the risen Christ had been seen alive in many different situations, as I said. And because our Lord anticipated his first followers' anxiety and antsiness after he would leave them visibly to go back to heaven, he explained some things to them before he left. One thing was he told them about Holy Spirit baptism. Verse 5, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. They didn't know of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, so Jesus mentioned it. Jesus oriented them to it before it happened to them. Now, to be baptized with water means to be placed into water. The Old Testament saints knew something about that kind of baptism. To be baptized with water means to be placed into the water as a picture of your identification with Christ in crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. And so water baptism announces a previously completed Holy Spirit baptism. Holy Spirit baptism is invisible, and water baptism is visible. Holy Spirit baptism is instantaneous to conversion, Water baptism is subsequent to conversion, most usually, although in Scripture we see plenty of persons who, after they trusted Christ to be Savior, were baptized in the same uh, minutes. And so Jesus wanted to orient them to something that they didn't know before. They may have known about water baptism in the Jewish tradition, but they didn't knew nothing about the Holy Spirit baptism. And Jesus didn't want to leave them before they, he told them about this. Now, if you keep your place in Acts and go with me to 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13, there are some evangelicals who are friends of mine. <laughs> They're my friends. This is not a point of uh, having separation with fellowship, these are born-again friends of mine who say that um, you have to ask to be Holy Spirit baptized after you're converted. I don't believe that the Scriptures teach that. One reason I don't believe the, the Scriptures teach that you have to ask and beg the Holy Spirit to baptize you after you're converted, and they would say that would be evidenced by tongues. No, in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13, for by one Spirit, capital S, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, watch it, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit, capital S. This is saying that when you trusted Christ to be your Savior, immediately you were made to drink of the Holy Spirit. He came to fill you, control you, never to be evicted from your redeemed life. You didn't have to ask him to baptize you. It's part and parcel of being converted. It's automatic. And the evidence of being spirit-baptized is not speaking in tongues, as I understand tongues have ended with the completion of the Bible, but the evidence of being Holy Spirit-baptized as a Christian is that you're controlled by the Holy Spirit in your speech and your thoughts and your actions. The fruit of the Spirit is produced on the branches of your lives. So anyway, Jesus wanted to explain before he left earth about Holy Spirit baptism. But he also wanted to teach them about his coming kingdom. He wanted them to know they didn't have to be worried, didn't have to fret, because there is going to be a future kingdom. And actually, he got into kingdom teaching because they asked him about it. 
And so if you look at verse 6, back to Acts chapter 1, verse 6, therefore, after he talked about Holy Spirit baptism, therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? That's their question. Will you at this time restore the kingdom that is Israel's? That's a direct question. Jesus gave them a direct answer. In verses 6 and 7, Therefore, when they had come together, they said to him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, watch, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put on his own authority. So I see three things in those verses. Number one, Jesus' first followers were sure that a kingdom was coming when Israel would be restored. They asked him, is it at this time you're going to do that restoring for our nation? They believed a future for Israel was coming in a kingdom, literal kingdom, where they would be restored to tight fellowship with God. They didn't ask Jesus, will the kingdom be restored for Israel? They didn't ask, will it? They asked, when will it be restored? They believed in the coming kingdom of which we believe in this New Testament time. So they asked about the timing of the coming of the literal kingdom. They asked about when on the calendar of events would they be restored as a believing nation and Yeshua, Jesus, Elohim, God. When? At this time, Lord? So the first thing was that they, um, they showed evidence that they believed in such a kingdom. The second thing I see is that Jesus' first followers expected that the kingdom would be real and not figurative. A piece of geography and not an ideal. They didn't believe that the coming kingdom would only be believers having King Jesus in their hearts. That's too way small of a kingdom. Jesus Christ is personal King and Savior to us, but his kingdom far outreaches ourselves, far bigger than us. One day his kingdom will be global, covering the globe as the seas of the earth do, including the land masses. He'll rule and reign, Jesus will, from Jerusalem, from David's literal throne for a thousand years, suppressing all enemies to his, to his rulership with an iron fist, an iron scepter. He came the first time as the Lamb of God to save us. He will come the second time as the Lion of the tribe of Judah, Ariah, Lioness. Coming back as a lion. It was once Jesus meek and mild at Christmas. It's going to be Jesus righteous and strong judge in his coming kingdom. Amen? Amen. So we would say people who believe that the only kingdom of Christ to be expected is in their own personal hearts, Jesus sitting on the throne of their individual redeemed hearts as king, those are called all millennial Christians. They're Christians. But they don't think there is a literal thousand-year millennial kingdom. So there's a prefix A in front of millennium. They are all millennial. They believe there's no literal earthly kingdom to expect. We don't believe that. We're premillennial. We believe that Christ will return prior to setting up a literal thousand-year millennial 
kingdom on earth. So what I'm seeing here is the first questioners of Jesus before the ascension, they were sure there was going to be a kingdom coming. They wanted to know when. Second, they didn't expect that coming kingdom just to be in their hearts, limited just their believing hearts. No, no. The third thing's that Jesus Christ wasn't all millennial either. He didn't say, oh, don't worry about the timing of the kingdom. Uh, don't worry about that. It's going to be in your hearts. The minute you trust me to be your savior, the kingdom of God is going to come tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of times as people trust Christ. He never said that. Jesus wasn't all millennial. Because if he had been all millennial, then he would have corrected the kingdom timing question of verse 6 with an answer in verse 7. But the Lord made no such correction. They said, is this the time the literal kingdom's coming to restore Israel to fellowship with God? When will that be? And he said, it's not for you to know the time. He didn't say, you're expecting the wrong thing. And so Christ did not believe in an all-millennial position relative to the kingdom. He knew he's coming back to establish it, to make things right where all things are wrong, to suppress evil, to promote righteousness, to bring justice to the unjust. Verse 8. But you shall receive power, Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Think about this. You're in the sandals of the first followers of Jesus Christ. He's been crucified, buried, raised from the dead, been with you 40 days, appearing alive, eating, fellowshipping, teaching, all things, 40 days. Put yourself in their sandals. They're wondering what's going to happen next. Probably they're scared. Would what happened to Jesus happen to them because they're associated with Jesus? Were they hiding in that upper room? We're not told explicitly, but it wouldn't have surprised me. And so they wanted to know, when's the kingdom being restored to Israel? When's God going to make it safe to go on the streets again, pledging allegiance to God the king and not to Rome? Maybe you have that question. How long is the mistreatment you're suffering going to last? When are you going to get relief? How long will it be that evil people seem to get further ahead of you than a righteous person seeking to God's will? You're saying, how long will this be? I don't know. But I know it's going to be squared away. It's going to be sorted out. God finishes whatever he starts. Verse 8 is the key verse to the whole book. But you shall receive power. Why? When the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Why do you get the power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you? For evangelism and disciple-making. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. Are you using Holy Spirit indwelling power in you as a born-again Christian to tell others about Christ and invite them to trust him to be their savior? That's why he's living inside you permanently. And when you lead someone to saving faith in Christ, the Spirit of God uses you. Are you sold out 
laser beamed focus to help that person grow up into the full stature of Jesus Christ, become a fully committed follower of Christ? Or do you just say, welcome to the family, grow up all by yourself, I'll catch up to you in 30 years? We want our church to be a spiritual nursery where babes in Christ can be entrusted to come to this church, to be with this church's people, so that they can decide and learn how to fully follow Jesus Christ because we, as more mature believers ourselves, are already fully following Jesus Christ. Do you want that? Well, it doesn't sound like you want that. Do you want that? So do I. Takeaways. One, if you've been Holy Spirit baptized, you should be water baptized. That's not a suggestion by a preacher. That's a command of God. To be water baptized is the next step after being Holy Spirit baptized at conversion. If you're unwater baptized since your conversion, you need to ask for water baptism. You can phone me this week. It's a matter of obedience. Number two, if you are premillennial, that is, you believe that Christ's second coming will precede a literal thousand-year kingdom of Christ on earth, if you are premillennial and not amillennial, then you ought to be expecting a literal thousand-year kingdom. When Jesus' model prayer's phrase comes to pass, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Have you noticed God's will is not being done on earth currently like it's being done in heaven? That's because the kingdom isn't here yet, but it's coming. There are many millennial Bible verses in the Old and the New Testament, but I'll close with Psalm 110, verse 3. Psalm 110, verse 3. Let's get there. We got this in staff devotions last week, I believe it was. Psalm 110, verse 3. The psalmist is calling out to God and praying that your people, that's Israel and the psalm and the church now, your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power, in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. Church, if our role in the future literal thousand-year kingdom of Christ on earth is to volunteer to serve him, are we not to practice volunteer serving him now before the kingdom? If you aren't voluntarily serving King Jesus before his kingdom, you will be after his kingdom comes. Why not start now? Why don't volunteer to serve him now? You say, Pastor, I don't have the best education. You can still voluntarily serve Christ. Pastor, I'm busy. I've got a high-pressure job. I don't have time to volunteer to do anything in the church you're going to be voluntarily serving the king in the kingdom. Wouldn't you want to start now? Pastor, I voluntarily served Jesus Christ for 40 years in this ministry, and now I'm tired. I'm old. Yes, wonderful. You voluntarily served Christ in your youth, and now you're old. Does that mean you should stop volunteering to serve him now? Does that mean there's no ways to voluntarily serve Christ in old age? I don't think so. 
If we believe in a literal coming kingdom of Christ, and we do, we ought to expect it, and we ought to have a dress rehearsal for it now. Lord, I thank you for this portion of word. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that when you left, you gave final instructions that are still germane. Forgive us, Lord, when we have been anxious about circumstances that surround us. Forgive us when we have taken ourselves off the volunteer list to serve you. Forgive us. May we serve you in a voluntary way inside the four walls of ministry in this church that extend beyond the four walls of our building to our communities. May we volunteer to serve you, King Jesus, before we'll be doing it perfectly in your kingdom. To your honor and to your glory, we pray these things in King Jesus, your name. Amen.